Americans. This is the Urbane Cowboys podcast with Josiah Neely of R Street Institute and Doug McCullough of Lone Star Policy Institute. Good day. Howdy, y'all. Welcome to the Urbane Cowboys podcast. I'm Josiah Neely with the R Street Institute. And I'm Doug McCullough with the Lone Star Policy Institute. Our guest today is Charles Lehman, who is a fellow with the Manhattan Institute. He's also a contributor with City Journal. Welcome to the program, Charles. Hey, thank you guys so much for having me on. Glad to be here. Yeah, so two jobs, fellow with Manhattan and contributor at City Journal. I mean, how do you how do you manage to, to swing that? You know, they 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 flow together pretty naturally because uh, <laughs> CJ CJ is our is our in house magazine for your listeners who don't know. Yeah, um, yeah, so. no, great uh, uh, great magazine. Uh, good, not only current cart- content but the archives. Uh, lots of great stuff going back many decades. I, I if you go back really if you go back and read old Heather McDonald articles, people like to point this out. If you go back and read old Heather McDonald articles from the nineties, it's like she's so clearly like like the you know just just predicted everything that was coming later yes it's, yeah, it's yeah. disturbing and how prophetic she was that early on that's right that's right yeah so you can go back and see the unheeded predictions of doom um so let's you know we're here to talk about maybe some some new uh unheeded predictions of doom for the future um so i wanted to have you on uh, because of an article uh, you wrote recently, you had a piece of the Dallas Morning News about plans to deal with increases in crime. But before before we got to that, I thought it would make a little bit of sense for us to talk a little bit about the increase in crime and uh, exactly what has happened, what do we know about it, about the causes, those sorts of things. What what uh, what what's going on uh, out there? Yeah, so I guess the, the the really top line figure is that 2020 saw what is probably the largest single year on year percentage wise increase in homicides since we started keeping records in the 1960s. Homicide rates probably grew 20 to 30 percent. Um, those ne- estimates aren't precise because here in America we're really bad at collecting crime data. Um, by that, I mean big cities do a pretty good job putting out timely data, and for everything else, you have to rely on the FBI, and the FBI will not be putting out 2020 end-of-year reports until probably, if we're lucky, September, quite possibly later. Um, but they put out some preliminary data that matches the city-level data. So overall, you know, that's with, with that caveat in place, it's likely that there was an enormous spike in homicide in 2020. There was a consummate in, uh, an associated increase in um, – a concurrent increase, excuse me, in uh, aggravated assaults, which probably measures increasing gun assaults, uh, and in shootings as measured by other indicators. Um, interestingly, there was also an increase in a big increase in grand theft auto or carjackings. Less an increase. Uh, there was uh, an ongoing decrease, part of a continuing decrease in property crime rates at the same time. So you know the, the top line is huge spike in violent crime, especially murders. And also, by the way, there was a smaller there was a smaller decrease in property crimes. Yeah, let me ask about the property crime thing because this you know this seems to be kind of a little uh, incongruous to have uh, a divergence there uh, uh, between violent crime and property crime. But maybe not. Like first, do you know are those traditionally correlated? Do they go up and down in tandem usually, or is it just kind of like uh, separate? Separate indicators, almost. 
Uh, yeah, no, they, they, they don't necessarily follow each other. We've seen sustained declines in both since the 1990s, but significantly uh, the property crime rate has, has dropped off, has continued to drop off while measures of violent crime have sort of plateaued and starting about 2007 went up and down. And in recent years, um, measures like the homicide rate and the property crime rate haven't necessarily correlated. I think just sort of very factually, it's or just very locally, it's it's unsurprising that property crime kept declining last year because like people were at home. Um, the one category where you saw an increase, in fact, was the sort of logical case of people were leaving their cars unattended on the streets, um, and so people stole more cars than by by significant factors stole more cars than they have in previous years. Um, so you know, I think I I think that divergence comes down to. Uh, people's property was more protected and there were few people out walking around to be robbed or mugged. Yes. Although uh, the, you know, San Francisco's district attorney's office is working on that, but yeah. um, okay. So let's focus then on, on violent crime, uh, particularly the, the murders or their shootings. So I, I've heard um, there seem to be kind of um, two main theories for what is driving this. On the one hand, you have people who say uh, this is this is because of the pandemic. And then on the other hand, you have people say, no, this is because of kind of like a, a police retreat after the protests and riot, looting, rioting uh, in the summer of last year with the George Floyd events. And that that, you know, that that is kind of like uh, led to, you know, an increase of, of uh, in these shootings there. So what, uh, you know, those are the two theories, like, uh, who, who's right? Who's right? Um, so I actually, I'm a contrarian on the right and that I think the answer is both. Uh, but I think the lion's share of the cause comes down to the depolicing effect. Although we have nuance what that means. Um, when it comes to lockdowns or COVID in general, there are some stories that make sense, some stories that don't make sense. So I think it's pretty plausible that if you close schools, you close workplaces, crime will go up for the simple reason that we know those institutions have an incapacitative effect. If you're at school, you're at work, you aren't out on the streets committing crime. Yeah. Um, school's kind of like a, a you know, diet, pri- diet prison. Maybe. Yeah, yeah the, the, the major benefits of schooling I've long maintained are incapacitative. Kids are terrible. We need to keep them in cages and school's an efficient cage. Uh, but so I, I, I think, certainly felt like school was a prison when I was there. But anyway, go ahead. <laughs> no, but so I think, you know, I think that's a plausible effect, although that's going to be limited in its duration as sort of stuff reopened at the latest last June. Um, I think it is implausible that the economy is a determinant. A, uh, violent crime, homicide does not tend to correlate with business cycles. You don't see homicide go up in recessions. You see property crimes go up in recessions. But you don't see homicides go up in recessions. B, um, we had an incredibly aggressive fiscal response here in the United States, like arguably the biggest fiscal response on earth. Um, we were very effective at responding to the coronavirus crisis. So I think it's unlikely that people, I mean, even, even if you believe for whatever reason that people respond to economic trial problems by committing more murders, um, it's unlikely that that's what was happening here. So I think the COVID, that COVID had a limited effect, but I do think that there is a large scale what, I, what you call broadly depolicing effect, what I and others would call the Minneapolis effect. If you look at all of the measures of crime we can get from major cities in the immediate aftermath, uh, George Floyd is killed on May 25th. In the immediate aftermath, all of the indicators spike nationwide 
in all of the cities that we can get measures for indicators of shootings, homicides, aggravated assaults, gun assaults, just go up immediately and remain sustained through the end of the year and into 2021. Um, And so it's really hard to look at that and not go, well, probably all the people out in the streets saying that they hated the police and they want to defend the police and all police are racist fascists and all of the municipal leaders and state and federal leaders saying that we need to defund the police and the police are racist fascists did not do something to deter police activity. Um, you can fight about, or you can, you, there, there are lots of different sort of causal stories that underlie that relationship. It could be the case that, you know, uh, police literally were doing less work. Um, it could be the case that people were less prone to calling or contacting the police because they saw the police as having less legitimacy. Um, and so crime went up as sort of communities were treated from the police rather than police were treated from communities. Um, we've seen large scale retirements, resignations, departures from big city police departments in many major cities. It could just be a manpower issue. It could be that um, even if police activity levels didn't go down, criminals believed that police activity levels were going to go down and they responded proactively. I think all of those factors are conceivably at play, but like the, the, the sort of treatment in general is there's a large scale anti-police movement in the United States. And I think the effect of it was to lead to this large increase in crime. I think that's the primary, although not exclusive driver of what we're seeing. Yeah. So one other thing I wanted to to ask about has to do with the issue of guns, because, of course, you know, another thing that that has been cited as well, you know, people bought a lot of uh, guns last year and then crime went up. uh, So maybe that is somehow uh, the cause. Obviously, shootings tend to involve guns. um, But uh, I mean, do you have any thoughts about uh, the relationships there, either, you know, with uh, gun purchases, but also just... uh, you know, enforcement or non-enforcement of uh, existing gun laws, right? Yeah. And, and you know, th- this is the fixation of the folks of the Biden administration. They rolled out their uh, anti-violent crime plan and it came down to we are going to crack down on gun dealers. Um, there's some other good, frankly, good stuff in there, too. They want to fund hiring more cops. That seems good. Um, but that was sort of the main focus of both the plan and Biden's remarks. And I think it's misguided um, for the following reasons. One is that, yes, there was a record increase in gun sales last year, probably more in, I think, March of last year than any other month since the FBI started counting. Um, But it's important to understand what's being measured there. The way that you derive those statistics is you do some multiplication based upon raw counts of background checks run by illicit gun dealers. And that underscores the fact that these purchases are being made by legal owners. And there are a couple of things that are true about that. One is that uh, gun gun ownership is fairly concentrated. Forty percent of households only there are there's one gun there's more than one gun per person in the United States, but only forty percent of households own guns, which means that like most people own multiple guns. So buying a gun does not necessarily add to the stock of gun owners. Um, thing two is that it takes a long time for a legal gun to be used in a legal crime. The ATF tracks this. They say on average you, they they can back. When they pick up guns, they can go from the guns registration number back to the original point of purchase because that's what background checks let you do. Um, And they say it takes an average of eight years for a gun to get from a legal purchase to a crime use on the street. So it's unlikely that all those guns that were purchased in March were then used for shootings in June. It just they, they don't move that quickly to the illegal market. And the third point is that we've seen large spikes before in gun purchasing, most notably 
uh, after Barack Obama was reelected, there was a huge spike because everyone thought he was going to come for their guns. Um, and they wanted to buy them before it was banned or whatever. Uh, and that did not precipitate a homicide wave. So um, the last thing, you know, there, there is there is some interesting work by um, Jeff Asher and Rob Arthur, her two crime analysts, looking at evidence on gun carrying, where they show that the share of guns picked up in arrests and stops has increased even as police activity has decreased. Um, I'm not persuaded that that's I have some quibbles with the statistics there, but overall, I think it is plausible that people were carrying more guns in the wake of the pandemic, um, that they were more worried about their safety. Uh, but I think that doesn't necessarily explain the three-month lag. It doesn't necessarily explain when people start shooting each other in July, in June, when they start carrying more guns in March. And if they, it isn't because of the pandemic, then we had to go back to the question of why are people carrying more guns, if not because they believe there's comprehensive depolicing going on. One of the things that was initially surprising to me about the nature of a lot of homicides is a lot of a lot of homicides are kind of like uh, uh, in the moment, uh, you know, or personality driven, like, you know, beefs or feuds or that sort of thing, where if you didn't happen to have your gun on you at that particular moment, it wouldn't turn violent. Wouldn't happen. Yeah, right. Yeah, right. Right. Like, you know, uh, yeah, either it wouldn't turn violent or it certainly wouldn't turn uh, fatal like that. Right. Um, so I guess, you know, just if you have like uh, uh, an increase in people carrying and then, you know, uh, maybe some drunken disputes uh, or jealousies, right? Could you see someone who's dancing with your girl or whatever? You know, that can kind of escalate in a way uh, uh, that it wouldn't ordinarily. Is that is that kind of like part of the part of the, the thinking behind this here? Yeah, um, I mean, and, and I think that's certainly true. Uh, it's it's. It's just hard to see a way in which um, a way in which that would result in such a large scale of increase in homicide. Like I have no doubt that that's a thing that happened in individual cases, um, but it seems implausible that the people who are prone to that particular kind of gun conflict were not previously carrying guns. And then they said, oh, well, but now there's a pandemic, so I'll start carrying my gun. Yeah. Um, certainly some of them will. Certainly at the margins, that has an impact. But I think it, it is not persuasive as an explanation on its own, as it were. At the risk of stating the obvious, the, uh, the, the protests for the George Floyd protests and so forth and other protests that we saw across the country last year, I mean, these didn't happen in a vacuum. You know, obviously, we had the killing of George Floyd. We had the killing of Breonna Taylor and so forth. Uh, I mean, there's some legitimate concerns and grievances about police treatment. What's the, you know, and again, we could turn this into almost into a whole different episode, and I don't intend to do that, but what's sort of the conservative response to that? Well, while we're wanting to respect the police and respect law and order, because ultimately for the good of society, we need to have that type of uh, policing uh, to keep our communities secure. But ultimately, uh, there were some, there's some, whether these were unusual events or not, they certainly had a high, you know, they were high profile and everyone was stuck at home in isolation watching these events. What's the, from your perspective, what's sort of the conservative response to that? Because if we want to sort of talk about root causes, I mean, I think that this, a lot of the protests we, we saw spiraled out of these very high profile events. What would conservative policy look like to prevent the situation we had with George Floyd, the killing of George Floyd and the Breonna Taylor killing. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, I think, I think that there are, 
two responses. One is to sort of point out that that level of that that response is not necessarily exclusively measuring police misconduct or is not necessarily exclusively measuring the scale of police misconduct. Like the, the, the fact of the matter is an unarmed black man in the United States is about as likely to die in a bicycle accident as he is to be shot and killed by the police. That doesn't mean that it's not bad when the police shoot, shoot and kill him. It is bad when the police shoot and kill him unjustly. Um, but it also means that uh, there's clearly some role played by uh, the emotional impact of police body camera videos, by a media fixation on this story, et cetera, et cetera, um, all of which serve to amplify the scale of the issue. That said, second point is like clearly there is a trust problem, particularly between the police and black communities. Um, and it's my view that public servants are responsible for how they are perceived, not whether or not that perception is fair or unfair. Like at the end of the day, I don't want the people who are running my government to be like, that's not a reasonable thing to say about me. I want them to be responsive to their constituents and police have constituents in the communities that they serve. Um, so I think there are, there are a host of different ways that we could talk. This may, this, this maybe gets into the point of the piece about the Dallas Morning News. There are a bunch of different ways you can think about how to, uh, improve police community relationships. Um, what I would say for now is that doing so almost certainly does not mm, – doing so is very hard if it's not done with the support of the community, done with the support of local leadership. Uh, and those, you know, the, those I think with the driving factors, it's, you know, uh, but police, police worked extremely hard over the past year to like try to win back trust that kept being taken away from them. Um, I think it's very hard for them to sort of try to foster this community trust without the support of other actors. Um, that, that, that's only a partial answer to your question. I just sort of assume that we're segueing into uh, talking about Dallas in particular. Um, but I can, I can be more expansive about what cops can do if you'd like. I, I, I saw that you recently wrote uh, about the, uh, the response in Dallas with the, I believe it is the Dallas Morning News. Talk a little bit about that approach, because I believe you said that this could be an approach that might be taken across the country. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, so so Dallas had its own wave of protests. Um, they dumped Urinay Hall, who was the first black and first woman police chief, I believe. Certainly first black woman. I think she's first black and first woman police chief that Dallas had ever seen um, because they were the they were, there was popular outrage against her. She was replaced by a guy named Eddie Garcia, who's now the chief, and he's rolled out a new violent crime reduction plan. Dallas has seen two years of violent crime increases, 2018, 2019, 2019, 2020. And so this is like a real problem in the city. They, very, they I think, had record homicides, uh, just like many other cities last year. They're very concerned about surging violent crime. What do we do about it? I think the sort of thing that I like about Garcia's plan, I'll run through the details in a second, is that it's not, it's, it's both not the sort of defund the police, the police need to step back approach that is advocated by non-police activists, but it's also informed by trying very much to focus policing on crime and crime alone. Um, the key insight of the Garcia plan is like this a uh, well-established criminological finding that crime is highly concentrated. So, for example, 10% of offenders commit 60% of crimes. Um, in any given city, 10% of city blocks are where the overwhelming majority of crimes are committed. Um, and if you use good data, if you identify who the offenders are based on rap sheets, if you 
use police data on complaints to focalize where crime is occurring. You can effectively target policing uh, such that you are more efficiently deterring crimes and also spending less time targeting people who are not criminal offenders. The point is that you reduce both type one and type two errors. You get better information about uh, where the crime is actually happening. And so simultaneously, crime, violent crime goes down because you know who the violent offenders are, you know where they're offending, you know how to target them and take them out. But also, ideally, community trust goes up because cops are no longer having those negative interactions where they harass a guy on the street and he goes home and says, well, I got harassed by the cops today. I don't like the cops. I'm not going to call them anymore. People don't see cops being an unfriendly occupying force in the neighborhood. They see cops as people who are interested in catching bad guys, non-harassing, law-abiding citizens. So that's sort of the the big picture um, model that Garcia is working on. It's early in Dallas, but I think it has a lot of promise. And I think it has a lot of promise as sort of a way that conservatives can think about how to deal with these dual crises of both surging violent crime and also, you know, legitimate or not, the very real uh, legitimacy concerns, legitimacy problems that police departments are facing right now and that it's their responsibility to deal with. Yeah. So, I mean, this is, I guess, uh, an interesting question is that I think I, and I, I think I saw, uh, maybe it was Matt Iglesias. Someone was tweeting something the other day that showed that most of the crime increase, even within, uh, I think he was looking at Washington, D.C., was, you know, confined to certain parts of the city, as you say. So it's not only that most of the crime in general uh, is concentrated in a narrow range, but even like the increase as well. Um, I don't know. I mean, do you see uh, like the Dallas thing as a potential model for the rest of the nation? Yeah. And, you know, there, there are other jurisdictions that have adopted this to talk about sort of place-based policing. We've known, I and mean, Jane Jacobs wrote about this, right? Um, if you go back and read James K. Wilson and George Kelling's original article that coined the term broken windows policing, they're in essence talking about place-based policing. Certain spaces are more or less conducive to crime. If we know, um, we know from robust randomized studies in Philadelphia that like, overrun dirty vacant lots if you clean them up crime drops in the immediate surrounding area um and and it isn't necessarily the case that crime just flows out to other places it's that particular spots are well suited to particular kinds of offenses some of that's constant so like if you go look at the nypd's data the single city block in the whole city that sees the most crime every year is right in front of the big macy's store because that's where all the thefts happen unsurprisingly um, on the other hand, it is the case that like, uh, certain blocks will be because they, because they're dilapidated, because they happen to have an abandoned building that's commonly used for offending, uh, because they are poorly surveilled by the surrounding community for whatever reason, they will be particularly conducive to criminal offending. Um, and if you target those blocks, both if you clean them up, but also if you put cops on the beat, if you have guys walking around or in cars, if you have a community watch, if you have security cameras, that, those spaces uh, become much safer. And because those sort of localized areas, hot, hot spots is what they're called, hot spots of crime get cooled off. The resultant effect is that uh, uh, crime, crime declines disproportionately from the amount of effort that you put into it. So, yeah, I mean, I, you know, absolutely, I think it's a model for the rest of the country. Uh 
DC, the overwhelming majority of homicide and violence happens across the river in Anacostia. Um, and also uh, a little bit in Northwest um, targeting those specific areas will yield much larger returns in terms of crime reduction than like sending a surging cops into Georgetown. Um, there are, there are obviously community trade-offs. There, there, there are ways of doing that right and doing that wrong, being a partner rather than an occupying force. But like, like the fundamental insight is important to getting crime to go down and to serving the communities that are really being victimized, which are disproportionately uh, poor, black, brown, uh, communities which suffer in myriad other ways, and all those ways are made worse by the crime problem. Okay, so let's uh, let's talk about the future. My um, uh, limited understanding of crime is you had a big increase in crime, say in the '60s, '70s, and '80s, and maybe even into the '90s, and then uh, you started to have decline. You had really big declines in crime, particularly in homicide, violent crime like that. And then in 2014, it it went up again for a couple of years and then stabilized or fell back down. And then, of course, over the last year or so, you've seen a big increase. I'm specifically thinking of homicides. I don't know about like, property crime or whatever. So first, is that is that basically right? What my memory there? Yeah, that, that that's more or less uh, the story as told by the FBI's data, which again is the the least worst source that we have. Right, right, yeah. Um, so I guess my question is: so you know, right now we've we've seen the last we've seen we, we've seen a big increase jump in the last year, and there are I guess you know logically three things that could happen with that. One, it could go back down. Right. Maybe, you know, the pandemic's over. Who knows, you know, what's going on. But whatever the underlying causes of the of that spike could go away, crime could go back down. Uh, we could kind of like continue on this new elevated level, whatever, you know, it's just kind of like a one time jump. Uh, or we could continue to see more and more increases. Right. So the upward trend could continue. So do you have any, uh, you know, like obviously it's uh, dangerous to make predictions, especially about the future. But, uh, I mean, do you have any sense of, of which of those options is kind of the most likely? Uh, I know perhaps some of that depends on what we do in response. But, uh, you know, like, what are your what are your thoughts on that? Yeah. Um, so I'm going to give you three conflicting answers uh, just to be for your, for, for your three options. I'm going to give three. It's like the I, clue, right? Yeah, exactly. Um, uh, so I think, you know, the, the, the important thing to know about the crime wave between the 60s and uh, it goes from about 1960 to 1994, um, the, about half of the increase overall, about half of the shape of that wave is determined by population composition, um, which is to say the baby boomers age into crime in the early to mid 1960s, which, but when I say age into crime, I mean that um, proclivity to commit crimes varies over the life course. When you're young, you're hot-headed, you're strong enough, you're fast enough that you can like punch somebody and take their stuff. You're impulsive enough. When you're 65, you don't do that so much. Um, so much of the, uh, I would estimate about half, um, and I can, that, that that's based on Frank Zimmering's, uh, he's a criminologist, his estimate, about half of the crime waves is attributable to the baby boom curve. Um, I think a reason to be optimistic about the future is that uh, for all the other problems that this will cause, American demography remains aggressively top-heavy uh, because we have all of these boomers who are now old and retiring. 
Um, and if you have a relatively top heavy population, if the population is shrinking because the or if the population is growing more slowly because the fertility rate is below replacement, et cetera, et cetera, you know, fewer young people, they're easier to control, the crime rate will remain lower. So it, we may not see a surge of the same magnitude that we saw in the, from the 60s to the 90s simply by virtue of that fact, um, graying countries to safer countries. That's one thing. The other thing on the other side is, so if you, you alluded to the 2014, 2015, 2016 spike, homicide went up like 10%. Uh, in 2015, another 10% in 2016. Um, at least some of that, I suspect, my view is, is determined by the quote-unquote Ferguson effect, which is analogous to this year's Minneapolis effect. Then you saw a wave of protest instigated depolicing or some other factor, maybe it's legitimacy, whatever, that led to the withdrawal of law, uh, the criminal justice apparatus. Um, I want to make two points about that. One is uh, – this is nested, but I'll get to my point. One is that I think we will keep seeing cycles of this stuff. Like the determinants of, uh, you know, of of protests blowing up uh, are not going away. We're going to keep being obsessed with this story. Um, Roland Fryer and Tanya Devi have shown that if you have a viral a police shooting, homicides go up the next year um, pretty predictably in major cities. Uh, we're going to keep seeing that. And so we're going to keep seeing these spikes. The second point there is that you talked about 2014, 2015, but if you look at the data, there's really been, as I mentioned, sort of a plateauing in violence. So from about 94 to 2007, the start of the Great Recession, um, violence declines precipitously. It's like it's like a straight off a cliff. From about 2007 to about today, it's really – it's flattened out. It goes up and down, up and down, up and down. Um, we see small declines, but like not – not anything like the gains that we used to get. Part of that story, in my view, is that um, both for political reasons, uh, the criminal justice reform movement, the release of the new Jim Crow, the Obama administration, et cetera, but also for fiscal reasons, the Great Recession and its impact on state, local, and federal finances, um, we have seen a ratcheting back of the criminal justice apparatus. Uh, prisons and jails have reduced their populations pretty consistently. The number of police officers per capita, as estimated by the Census Bureau, has declined year on year since 2007-2008. So I do think it's the case that just like the the machinery of criminal justice is running less well than it used to be. And that indicates that not only are we going to see, I suspect, continue to see these spikes and declines, uh, but also in the medium term, we may see an increase in homicide levels and other violent crime levels in crime levels in general because of that thing. Point three, very briefly, is that even if this isn't true, um, it's important to situate this conversation in the context, not merely of like what has been, but what we ought to want to be. 15 to 20,000 people are murdered every year in the United States. That's like a huge number. Um, there's, there, that's, the, the murder rate today is approximately what, what it was in 1960. Um, in other words, we've made no progress on murder in the last 60 years. Again, tens of thousands of people are murdered every year. We have lots of tools that conceivably work if we applied them a little harder, a little better, a little faster with a little more money. Um, and so, you know, even, even if crime, even if homicide remains at its current levels, I would argue that those are unacceptable levels for it to remain at. And the people who are being victimized should not be comforted by the fact that they would have been victimized even more in the 1990s. Yeah, I've never, I've never quite understood the uh, argument that you do hear that people do make a lot that uh, you shouldn't, you shouldn't worry about rising crime because 
it was once worse. <laughs> you know, lots of things were once worse. Um, yeah, right. And, and you know, as <laughs> some of that is like justifying a political project and some of it's about tolerance, right? The, the theory yeah. is that we, 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 our level of tolerance for crime should not be zero. Um, and right. clearly crime has been worse. So we should, we clearly will tolerate this level of crime responses. Actually, a lot of people think that crime is a really huge problem. They perceive crime is going up around them. Maybe our tolerance for, our democratic tolerance for crime is lower than is implied. Maybe the optimal crime rate is lower than what we're at just because, you know, the current crime rate is lower than it used to be doesn't mean it's the optimal one. Yeah, that's, that's right. Okay. So, uh, final question for you, Charles, we do, um, we often like, uh, as a lighter question at the end to ask people, ask our guests, uh, for a movie or TV show related to the topic of the conversation that they really like. Uh, Often this is a difficult thing to do because we're we're talking about like uh, you know insurance reform or you know uh, uh, other things that there just aren't a lot of uh, movies about. But when it comes to crime, I mean it's like sixty seventy percent of everything everything that's ever been made. So uh, do you? I mean do do you uh, do you watch like uh, crime shows, crime movies? Do you have any favorites? Uh, Gosh, what are my what are my favorites? You know, I I, <laughs> I I I watch more horror movies than I watch crime movies. I enjoy it. sort of. I'm 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 going to go with the obvious pick, which is to say, um, everybody likes The Wire. Um, yes, I think it's yeah. a classic television show, and I'm not sure I would claim that it accurately depicts crime because I don't I don't have a strong sense of what Baltimore was like in the contemporary period. But but I certainly think it's it's an interesting insight. It's an interesting piece of sociological work. Um, David Simon is joke on the internet but a good uh, uh, a good maker of television okay well our guest today has been Charles Lehman uh, if you were interested you can find his stuff at City Journal and the Manhattan Institute website thank you very much for joining us yeah thank you thank you again for having me on <laughs>